0: The Outspoken Bible. Conversations about the word. A podcast from Scottish Bible Society. Hello and welcome to episode three of season five of The Outspoken Bible. I'm Fiona Stewart and I'm here once again with Elaine Duncan. Hello. Hello. And Neil Glover. Hello. 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 Welcome back to you both. Thank you. Now, we're still interested in hearing your comments on digital engagement with the Bible and obviously also on your thoughts on Elijah and what we've been speaking about. Perhaps the last couple of episodes have raised a question or a disagreement for you. Uh, let us know, of course, by emailing outspoken at Scottish Bible or via the SBS social media. Now, today we are going to be talking about 1 Kings 19. So if you're reading along with us, then now would probably be a good time to pause the podcast and look it up. Read it for yourself. But before we get into that discussion, my starter question this week for you, Neil and Elaine, is you ready? Listen carefully to this question. As you've gone on in ministry, have you got better at knowing your limitations and your weaknesses? And what do you do when you know you're not in a good place?
1: I think the the answer for me is probably. Yeah, but not always. So, i th- just recently, I i just went hugely busy and found myself. Well, people who are in the Church of Scotland know about this that there's a thing called Presbytery Mission Planning. And I have just gone crazy on that at the same time as a, trying to write this book and at the same time as um, trying to. Um, do all sorts of other things in the parish and all I would say is people say no I've said yes to lots of things that people would probably say I should have said no to but I am recognizing that this is unsustainable yeah so um I'll not I need to make sure I can't do this for too long so yes and no is the answer
0: yeah and interesting you've gone after busyness as the as the question
1: yeah, what was the question? I, I just, just heard just, business.
0: Well, you heard business. That's okay. That's fine. That's, that's fine. Where I went, I've just it was just about weaknesses and and vulnerabilities. I suppose
1: that's funny, isn't it? Mm. Just avoided that bit of the question. Mm-hmm. There's your own answer, <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Elaine. How about you?
2: I think I've spent all my time in ministry learning about my weaknesses <laughs> and the things that that I just can't do. Uh And and some of those lessons are are really painful. But I think what, probably what I've learned is how much I need a team around me. And you just can't go it alone because none of us have everything that's needed in whatever situation we're in. And so I think for me, the recognition of my own limitations has led me to appreciate the value of teamwork so much more and and i would hope and you would need to ask my team currently whether this is true or not but i would hope that it has enabled me to encourage and draw out the skills and gifts of others um, in a better way and I, i hope i've got better of that at that over the years
0: Excellent. So let me let me do a supplementary to both of you, which is how do you then do that? So that you've you've explained the kind of the what. So Elaine, it's teamwork. Neil, it's about diary management. I mean that's maybe simplifying it a bit. Um how, how do you then address what you recognise as as limitation?
1: A- so for, for somebody me, who's maybe yeah.
0: younger in ministry and, you know, thinking, gosh, these are probably things that I need to think about.
1: Yeah. So it it's listening to yourself. It's it's just simply recognize because I've been quite ill at various points. It's the recognition that I, I'm not indestructible. Um, And and then you, you do the thing. So the, the thing about diary management is actually it doesn't in and of itself doesn't help because what you end up doing is you just end up doing more. Um, more efficiently uh so i guess it's recognizing that you just have to stop at certain points and listen to the people around you who tell you
2: and i think in terms of teamwork i think it's learning in every situation that there are always others who can contribute and and drawing them in and and sometimes that takes a bit of nudging and encouraging because not everybody thinks they have something to contribute mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so I I, th- I think that just noticing others and then drawing them in is yeah. is really important.
0: Yeah, I think that's hard though. Speaking personally, I find it hard often to let other people do things that I know I can do well. Yeah, it's the delegation thing, isn't it? That it, it you know, and and I actually, or, feel or even well. to think that they might do it better.
1: <laughs> no, that's not true because people don't do things better than you. But thanks. Um, <laughs> the but it's a hard thing because, you know, we have this idealized view of teamwork that, oh, you've got to use the team and all the rest. But some people do things and it's rubbish. So what do, you, what do you do? And and it's not just rubbish because you think it's bad. They're hating it or maybe they're loving it, but everybody else around them is going, this is a nightmare. So how do you, and you know, in your game, that's hard. Yeah, I th- I think you've, you know I mean I've
2: simplified it in terms of drawing people in into the team because you 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 do have to look at what people's particular contribution can be and that means noticing people's gifts. Um, and and a lot of that is about doing the hard thing of putting yourself aside you know none of us find that easy we've all got something in us that that kind of wants to wants to be the the start of the show. But I mean, I I go to lots of places, and people are very complimentary. Often, if I mean, if they've heard of the Scottish Bible Society, then often they're complimentary about, um, you know, the things that we do and what have you. And I I just always have to, you so tempting just to say, "Oh, thank you," and you you take a wee bit of the glory for yourself, you know. But actually, I know the reality that that you know the front end of what we people see and experience is because. People on the team are doing different roles; they're doing them really well, and so my response, I hope most of the time, if not all of the time, is to say, "Look, thank you for your encouragement." There's a great team who are making all that happen, mm-hmm. Yeah. because that's the reality. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. But when you're the when you're the boss, you know, when you're the kind of CEO, you you, you tend to, you know, the the comments are, are fired at. Mm. me mm. but I've got to be really careful not not to take them personally because it is actually about the whole team
1: mm.
0: mm-hmm. and that's fine if they're nice comments because C- I think the, the the test of leadership is not to is to is to cover those who maybe are the ones who've made the mistake and and, and take that as the leader isn't it I, I found that in a oh, number yeah. of situations I really want to say actually that wasn't me <laughs> Yes, that's right. It, you know, it's, you, it's the that, exact it? opposite.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a really good point, Fiona, because it's mm-hmm. the exact opposite. If the if the they, if there's criticism, uh-huh.
0: that's right. Uh, you have actually, to be able to absorb that, don't you, in leadership? I've
2: I've got to take that and take that on the chin and uh, do whatever apology is yeah. is necessary.
0: Yeah, Neil, to your point about the, you know, if, if there are people who are not very good at what they're doing and all that, I think I've learned a lot from the the theatre world, mm-hmm. where you would it's almost cutting it off at the pass, isn't it? So, so you would you would do your rehearsal and then you would have notes mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you would have notes and the notes would be quite robust. And if somebody's yeah. not a great director, they're probably not very good at giving notes and that's not very helpful. But most of the time, you know, you're working in an environment where you, you know that the person leading you is is wanting you to do the best performance that you mm-hmm, can. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can think of other, you know, equivalent situations within the kind of artistic con- context, really, where team... There is something about the kind of dependency of the team, but there's also the robustness of critique that says, actually, this is not about you personally. This is about us doing better as a team and about how you contribute to that. I think in the Christian world, we can be a wee bit shy of
1: we are. giving so, that feedback. So I think I've been in that situation that you described, Elaine, where someone has criticised something that we've done. And I, I, I'd like to think, you know, whether, whether in a church context or some of the national work I did, And I'd like to think I was pretty decent at defending the team. But um, probably I wasn't as good at the second bit of the conversation, which is if we had made a mistake, it's to go and address it with the team member privately. And that's often the harder one to do. Um, And we did a funeral last week for a guy called Gilbert Price, who was big in the Scottish community theatre world. And people said that Gilbert was brutal when he mm-hmm. was, um, I mean, I think that word was used by his family, but he was he was utterly tough. And the, one of the guys who'd worked with him said, um, this wasn't the exact word he used, but he said, when we were rubbish, he told us, and we probably needed to hear it because we were rubbish. Um, it, it was slightly uncomfortable moment because the word he used wasn't rubbish and he was using it at the front of church. <laughs> I was like, oh, you can't do that. Um, but anyway, but the point being that that Gilbert built that because, as you said, he came from the theatre world where that was expected.
0: Now, we left Elijah out running Ahab at the end of 1 Kings 18, heading towards Jezreel. Elijah had witnessed God's resounding victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. His prayers for rain had been answered and the drought had at last come to an end. So it should have been a moment of celebration. But as I think we'll discover as we travel from the mountaintop to another mountaintop today, uh it wasn't that way. So, Neil, you have entitled this episode Brokenness and Stillness on Horeb. Can you begin by giving us a sense of how we see that brokenness and stillness played out in this chapter?
1: It's all provoked when Jezebel makes this curse. May the gods do to me and more. So we're going to pick this up later on. She she deliberately claims the gods. Um, if if what happened to the prophets, my prophets of Baal, doesn't then happen to Elijah. And this one word you would expect Elijah to be able to brush this off, I mean, he's he's dealt with 400 prophets. He's dealt with the king. But something about this penetrates right into him and he shatters. And he initially um, goes away into the wilderness uh, to Beersheba. So there's echoes of Hagar in Genesis who also went into the Beersheba wilderness and got attended to by an angel. And then for 40 days and 40 nights, he seems to travel to Horeb, which is... In we which is the same as Sinai. I think Calvin thought one was the North Slope and one was the South Slope, but um Elaine could fill us in because she's been there. And then uh and then you have this conversation that we're going to come to, this this famous conversation where where God doesn't meet Elijah in fire or earthquake or wind, but in something else. Um, but it, it's a collapse because Elijah says in, in verse four. It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. And there's a real question as to how much he has actually moved from that by the end of the chapter.
0: And mm. mm. um, can we start with that that initial, the initial few verses of, of chapter 19? So before he actually gets to the to the place of the mountain. Um, I was reading a commentary. I just wanted to drop it into the conversation because <laughs> sometimes I skim, but I did read this one properly, uh, and there was some some controversy around verse 3. So in verse 3 when it says, in, in the NIV I'm reading from, it says Elijah was afraid but there's a footnote that talks about Elijah seeing. Mm. Do we think that Elijah's response to Jezebel is a legitimate response or is it a fear-driven response? Is it a godly response or is it a running away from what God would have him do?
1: Interesting contrast. Yeah. Sorry, on you go,
0: <laughs> Maybe it's all of them. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: Because, I... yeah... I, I mean, it, it's easy, I think, to see it as fear. Mm-hmm. But that sense of, is he seeing Jezebel for who she is? I, I'm guessing that a few of the folk that listen to the uh, to us chatting might have watched Happy Valley.
0: Oh, no spoilers though, Elaine, because I've not finished watching it yet. No, just I haven't. Uh...
2: Okay. Finished.
0: But there's an interest in issue around the
2: the character of the bad man in happy valley and who who sees what he is really like uh. and i mean what is it about jezebel i mean uh-huh. she obviously has some sort of power even over her husband and she's the driving force in the way that God's people have actually moved away from Him, she is the kind of key player mm-hmm. in that. So, is it that that Elijah sees something of that and just loses his nerve? Mm-hmm. But why does he do that when actually he's he's just seen God mm-hmm. it, with this incredible victory? Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a mystery. It is mm-hmm. a mystery,
0: and it's it's interesting to me because she has this mythological kind of status. You know, her her name has become a, a noun for oh. for a description.
1: <laughs> I hear it in a Scottish accent. Yeah, Jezebel. Yeah, yeah, Jezebel.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, uh huh.
1: She has this power and is so there there's a number of possibilities here and I don't think we have to choose, because I don't think the Hebrew text makes us choose either. I as you've said, it's this failure of nerve. I read a good quote about failure of nerve from the the rabbi management guru Edwin Freeman, where he says that failure of nerve is the accommodation to our immature parts of ourselves or the immature parts of our organization. Uh, so there's a there's a there's a fearful thing. So that even takes me to is this a is she becoming like the fearful mother uh, to his uh, infant son within him? So um, students of Freud can go down that route, or is there a spiritual power or is there a sense of perfection? You know that thing when a young person gets seven A's and a B in their in their nat fives and the first question they get asked is, what is with the B in? Yeah. Um, there's a sense here that Elijah, he hasn't got 100% and then he magnifies that failure. So later on, he'll say, they are seeking my life, even though it's one person. So... um sometimes people in cognitive behavioural therapy talk about the binoculars problem, where what you do is with your uh, failures, you get a set of binoculars and you look at them so they're absolutely magnified. And then when it comes to your successes, you turn the binoculars around and you reduce them. So I wonder if there's a a sense of distorted reality going on here for Elijah. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, also partly it was why I asked you that opening question because because I thought what you might do, obviously I misjudged the period, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what I thought you might do is go down the route, which is probably, if you'd asked it back to me, what I would have talked about is is that thing when you are part of something where God is moving, and actually um, you need to be very careful spiritually in the hours and days that follow that. So for me, I, I think that's yeah. when I'm most um, yeah. vulnerable to temptation. I'm most vulnerable to that spiraling into the you know that, the perfectionism stuff, Neil, that you're talking about, yeah. all, all of those voices that come in. Um and I wonder I wonder if there's something of that going on for him. mm mm-hmm. Cause you do see that a lot in,
2: you know, like mission teams that, you know, or, or a church that has, you know, got a very focused time of mission and everybody's involved. Um, and there's a there's a great sense of camaraderie actually. There's a really great sense of togetherness. You we see it in scripture union uh events. And then when that stops. There is just that sense of well, what is it? Disappointment? Is uh-huh. it just lack of? You know, there's been adrenaline yep. running, and then you know, I guess we all have experienced that drop in adrenaline, and that can leave you feeling pretty miserable.
1: Yeah, there is some, there is something in that, but it, I, I think this is tied as well so I think he's very vulnerable to that but then there's an additional factor so the adrenaline's dropped as you've just said all the the kind of the thing about Horeb is and, and with any crisis situation the great thing about a crisis is you don't have to decide what to do you, you can it's very obvious this is the thing we need to do and we'll pour our energy into it once the crisis is gone, life suddenly gets complicated again and gets filled with choices. So there's that loss. But the other thing that also has happened here, and this has a spiritual power to it and a spiritual origin, is there is an attack. There is something which 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 comes in on Elijah, a threat to his life, which for some reason is far more powerful having come from from Jezebel than, than Ahab. And, you know, you've hinted maybe it's because there's a sense of her in touch with pagan deities or something we're going to come to that later on uh but i i think i've done holiday clubs where something has happened on the last day and and it's whack and and that thing completely dominates it and i don't know how many times i've said something like this was such a great club and then this thing happened on the last day, mm-hmm. and you actually read this and you think maybe that's built into the process. Maybe mm-hmm. that that is what has to happen. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So feeling all of this, I suppose, mm-hmm. and, and we have to be careful, don't we? That we don't we don't impose a whole lot of twenty first century. Oh, it's the burnout one. The
1: burnout one I don't like. He's it's, it's not burnt out. It's more. It's different. I mean, there is such a thing as burnout, but that's not it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm left wondering what, given what he's feeling, it's really interesting that he runs to Horeb. Uh-huh. Mm. And, and he runs to the place where he knows that Moses significantly encountered God. Yeah. Mm. So, so there is something in his reaction that is positive about almost like knowing what to do about it. mm
0: mm-hmm
1: yeah yes. to go to the right place, the place
0: goes to the right place dwells. yeah
1: yeah and, and not just not just Horeb but the cave on Horeb which is where Moses went uh, to have his vision in exodus 34 so it's um it's quite specific and he would have known that story
2: hmm and yeah.
0: the, there are there are these parallels with the Moses story, aren't there
1: yeah, so that obviously there's a there's 40 days and 40 nights, which appears in the, the Moses story. That's the amount of time he's up the mountain. It's not quite the same chronology there. I think the 40 days and 40 nights happens before, but it, it's, it's a very complete reference. There is the reference to the cave, and in a moment, God's about to pass by as God passed by Moses. So there, there's all those connections. And you also wonder when Elijah says, I'm no better than my father's. Does he go back to, to almost the place of his father? So there is his own father, which we never ever hear about. But in, in another sense, is he also saying that Moses is my father? He, he's probably—is he the most significant prophet that Israel's had since Moses? I'm trying to think of anybody in between who would come close. Samuel maybe. Samuel maybe. But but Elijah, I think, is a more powerful figure than Samuel. You don't you don't see Samuel on the Mount of Transfiguration. So yeah, I I think he recognizes perhaps, that he is in the line of Moses. Um, and that has its positives and negatives.
2: And he goes to the right place, but boy, is he in some distress. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. He's, he's in a story. He's in a oh, story he's... you can't shift from.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I, I think a lot of people, you know, probably I, identify with that sense of despair
0: mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm.
2: that he expresses. And whatever has has brought that on, it's a pretty dark place that he's in.
1: Yeah. It's, it's almost as if the words of Jezebel have pierced through Superman's outer skin and all the human stuff of Elijah is now open. So he, he wants his life to end. He goes to Beersheba where Hagar went. I, I love Hagar, by the way. I always want to connect with Hagar. And uh, he he has that angelic experience there. But interestingly enough, that's not enough to heal him. And I think that's a really important pastoral point here that very often when people are on a, a journey of recovery from profound collapse, they will often at the start of that journey maybe go in a conference or they'll go on a retreat and they'll come back better from that retreat but the expectation of them and the people around them is that they're 100% better but actually it's not the case and actually there's probably still a very very long road to have to 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 walk through um you can imagine somebody coming up to elijah after he'd been in Beersheba and saying are you better now you can go back but he's not and and yeah he runs he he goes to horeb it's interesting isn't it it's like a he's like He's like a homing, like a salmon, going back uh-huh. to the river from which it to came. The place, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah.
0: And there are some very pr- practical things, aren't there? The very practical things around around how the Lord deals with him in that situation. So there's a, there's an allowing of the time and the repetition of that story. So, you know, he's not zapped out the picture straight away. Um, but there's also the very practical things about sleep, about eating, about drinking, and you don't you don't want to jump too quickly to being practical for people who might be walking through difficult times now mm. but there are there are things there aren't there that i think are helpful around the practical provision of the lord
2: yeah the fact that you know it's provided by other people mm-hmm. so he he doesn't mm. have to go foraging himself he doesn't have to you know start baking bread yes he's he's just being cared for he's just i mean this is tlc plus 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 isn't it
1: yeah and, and it's it's angels. There's quite a lot of stories in the scripture where people run away or have to get away to a desert, and then they get looked after by angels. Uh, so there's obviously Hagar that we've mentioned. There's this story here. There's a story. It's it's slightly slightly different, but Philip and the eunuch. He he's fleeing persecution. He goes to the wilderness, and uh, I think an angel appears there. Could be am I right? I, I misremembered that. And then in Revelation, this also happens where the woman. Uh, who people sometimes thinks might be Mary or might be the church uh, has to escape from persecution and goes out to the out to the wilderness
0: mm-hmm.
1: and meets an yeah. angel again. I think. I
0: was also, yes, I was also kind of thinking about Jesus, which is it's different. Mm, isn't it? Going into it's the wilderness, fasting, but it is going into the wilderness. But yeah,
1: he goes to the wilderness and and he meets angels again. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So he he is there. There's the the practical, the TLC, as you say, think that, that's um, you know very much at the heart of that. Neil, I really liked your phrase there about about Superman's what was it? Superman's skin being pierced. Yeah. And the humanity being exposed. Mm-hmm.
1: Jezebel's the Kryptonite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something yeah. There's, there's something about that, isn't there? There's a. Mm-hmm. We're, keep saying we'll come to this later on we are going to come to it later on there's something as well that's interesting about this that it brings the the deconstruction comes at the end of the story um i'm not that big fan of making huge star wars analogies not um but what's interesting is that star wars starts with the big victory and if i can make a comparison that would be one king 17 and then the empire strikes back it's the moment where you where luke skywalker has to be deconstructed and build himself up again and also happens in a cave caves are very important in heroes journeys everybody from luke skywalker to moses to elijah to robert the bruce and that's in the middle and then the final part of of the star wars trilogy is the up note again it's return of the jedi and you could argue as well, that's the shape of Lord of the Rings. What's interesting here is that the deconstruction happens at, well, certainly in this segment, happens at the end. It's such an important part of the story. Um, and I I think Elijah is is coming to the end of this stage of his career on a down note. And, and that's okay. Because the biggest, I often think that the biggest part of the, the real reason that God sends us on missions, well, this is not, it's not an either or, but as huge a, a reason that God sends us on mission or, or SE weekends or holiday clubs or all the rest is, is to is to share the gospel, but it's also to change the team. Uh, that's the big thing that happens. And the it's almost as if the whole point of the Elijah story was actually to change Elijah. In the same way that the whole point somehow of Jonah's story, certainly the part of the story is interested in, is about all that stuff with ships and Nineveh was actually about changing Jonah. God is so interested and passionate about changing us that in mm-hmm. a sense it's not egotistical to say we we are the change in me is the part of the story that's important. The reason for foolproof is for Uh, your theatre company, uh, theatre organisation, what do you call yourself? Arts organisation. Creative Arts Charity. Yeah, so the point of foolproof is to share the gospel through uh, the creative arts, particularly drama, but also its other primary purpose is to change Fiona Stewart so she looks looks more like Jesus. And similarly, the point of me being a minister in Aberfeldy is is partly to share the gospel in Aberfeldy, but it's also to change me. And one could argue, Elaine, that the whole point of you being... A a chief executive SBS Is just to sort you out
2: Absolutely, that's a big job And I think Linked to that If you think about parts of the Bible That people that are not regular churchgoers Know I think more would know Something of this chapter Mm. And that sense of the still small voice Mm. That we'll come to Than would know about the victory at Mount Carmel
0: I mean, it'd be interesting to do a poll about that Wouldn't it?
1: oh huh. that that's a really interesting question yeah i think it's in the so it's in a and it's in a hymn dear lord and father of mankind um and it has the phrase what's it a uh, through earthquake wind and fire i think god speaks through the earthquake wind and then it says still small voice of calm oh still small voice of calm so i think when something when a story makes it into a hymn it then acquires legs for want of a better expression, it, it kind of lives on
0: into yeah. into the popular understanding. Yeah. So, so we find ourselves in on Horeb, and yeah. it, there's this this moment where the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? Does God not know what He's doing here? I find it a
2: fascinating question, mm. and not least because it's then repeated again for a very open question, isn't it? God God is is inviting Elijah. To engage with him, God's not commenting mm-hmm. yet on Elijah's situation. He's not come with instructions yet. He opens with a question, which is, a, I think, is a very welcoming, very inviting way to begin a conversation. And God is inviting Elijah to just just tell me what you want to tell me.
1: There is a. I, I mean, that is one way of reading it. And it is, as ever with Hebrew, the Hebrew doesn't tell us. There's another reading that there's something slightly pointed about it. It's like, what are you doing here? Um, and the, the phrase, what is it to you? Often when it appears in the Bible is a kind of, it's a provocative question. Um, now, I actually think those things aren't as contradictory. Sometimes a good therapist Will will ask the question, "How are you?" or "What's it going?" in a very kind of broad, hospitable way, but but sometimes the job of the 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 person who's helping you explore is actually to to slightly jab a wee bit because that's what's required to get beneath the surface. It might be a bit of both going on here. Tone
2: of voice, yeah, yeah. Tone of voice is so important, isn't mm-hmm. it? In you know, so. How do, we, how do we understand that? You know, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, and obviously it's in the Hebrew originally, but we don't know where the tone is, is going. Um, and that's why I think it's really great to explore possible uh-huh, tones. Uh-huh.
0: Well, it takes me back to Genesis 3, actually. Yeah, it takes me back to the question of the Lord in the garden. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, yes. Yeah. Or, and that's accusatory, isn't it? Do you think?
0: Well, is it? Or is it provocative? Is yeah, it openly yeah. provocative, what you're doing here?
1: But it. It's, where are you? If if the Hebrew had wanted to nail down the interpretation, it could have done. But it, 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 we're, it chooses not to. I think where I go with this is, you know that bit at the end of Job where um, God... He says to after all the friends have all spoken, he says, "Who is this that darkens my counsel?" I I feel it a little bit like that moment because that is both a healing moment for Job, but the tone that God takes is is sharp as well. Um, that there's there's something about God not allowing us. God isn't fluffy. It, yeah, and there's something pushed.
2: It's also that what we, we often talk about, don't we, now, about the way we communicate, mm. whether it's through text or email. You can't, you don't know tone. No. You've got to be so yes. careful yeah. what you actually put into yeah. a, a text that can be so easily misunderstood or an email. And the number of times, actually, it's so much better just
0: to pick
1: up the phone. And speak to somebody. I thought you were about to because... say it's so much better to add an emoji. <laughs> Sorry, that's, <laughs> that's can... true. Sometimes it can say so much more. <laughs> but yeah,
2: yeah, the emojis are great. But but you do not think sometimes we need to
1: actually speak to one another? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a controversial point, Elaine. <laughs> uh, you can you can go halfway, can't you? You can send one of these voice messages. I um, love mm-hmm. a
0: voice note. Let's not get really? onto that. Too. Oh, I love a voice note. Why do you love them so much? Well, me? I mean, on a very pragmatic way, it lets me speak much more quickly than I can type. So there's that aspect to it. I think you can communicate tone, I, and I like the the lengthening. Of, there's a number of people I would have regular voice note conversations with, but you don't feel an immediacy. You can reply, but you can also leave it for a wee while and reply later on.
1: It's, it's think it's, on it. It's the best of all. Anyway, the, the yes. point is. Anyway, that's,
0: being... that's a total aside, but yes, yes. <laughs> well, it's
1: tone, isn't and it's it? And also,
0: it's also making the emoji things, making me think about the um, that documentary that was about writing, the history of writing. Really good on iPlayer. Uh, there's three episodes, and one is about the invention of papyrus. One is about the invention of, um, oh gosh, it's about the printing press, I think. And then the, the, the final episode is all about the, the invention of the emoticon and the difference that makes to how we communicate. Really interesting. Because people, the show people notes. can communicate very clearly. Yeah, put that in the show notes, definitely. Uh, anyhow, yeah, so here we are. It, the Lord asked the question. I mean, I think the, the the takeaway, whatever the tone of it is, when God asks you a question, you, you just need to sit up and pay attention yeah. to what's going on in yourself as much as what he's saying. Uh, and there is this repetitive structure. Um, can we talk uh, about, Neil, you wanted to talk about congruence, this idea of um, the repetitive story that Elijah speaks.
1: Yeah, so... What I find really interesting is Elijah has this story where he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. So there's something quite self-justificatory about that. I've been very zealous. The God of hosts. So he, he builds it up. You know, I, I've been doing the Lord's work for the Israelites, have forsaken your covenant. So they're, they're all wrong. They've thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, which is, is true, although the last person to have killed prophets with swords was Elijah himself. Mm. I alone am left. Now, we know that's not true because uh, Elijah knows that um, Obadiah has hidden the prophets. And Mm. also, he's just won a great victory. So who were these people that helped Elijah? Because he he didn't do it by himself. The people themselves helped Elijah. So he, he has brought the people around And they are seeking my life. Well, the only person we know that's seeking his life is Jezebel. It's it's a singular, not the plural here, to take it away. That bit's right. So what you've got is a mixture of a story, some bits of which are true, People are trying to take away his life, or one person is, a very powerful person. Some bits are distorted, and some bits are just untrue, and it's all mixed in there. But that's his story, and his story is kind of, I'm unique. I'm the only person who's done any good here, and look where that's got me. And then God meets him through the still, small voice, and it's that beautiful, tender moment. Where it's a completely different experience of God. We're on Mount Sinai, which was associated with fire, where we've just had an experience of fire on Mount Carmel, but this is so different. Still small voice, the, the hush. And you'd love to think at this point that having had this profound spiritual experience, Elijah goes, okay, fair enough. I accept that that something is different here. And, and God asks him the second question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, and we're all ready for a new transformed Elijah because he's undergone this spiritual experience on top of the mountain. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, it's the same story. And the it's so frustrating. I wonder how God felt at that moment. Um, Elijah, I've I've I've, I've done all this stuff, and you're still in the same place.
2: I would like to. Just putting another little thing about tone here. Because, absolutely right, Elijah says the same words, Mm -hmm. but does he say them with the same conviction? And that's what we don't know, and the text doesn't, doesn't help us with that. But, again, we've probably all experienced that sense of We've got our story, and I think the way you've described that nail is really helpful. We've we've got our story, and and Elijah has just lost perspective completely, hasn't he?
1: Yeah, he's but, he's he's bound what is truth in with a whole bunch of distortions, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: But then you know, this incredible thing happens as he goes towards the entrance of the cave, because there's the. the You know, the Lord is communicating with Elijah at this point. So there's the earthquake, there's the fire, and then there's the still small voice. And you wonder if if God is actually saying, I can be in the earthquake. That's a bit controversial at the moment when we're recording during the week of the awful earthquake in, uh, that's affecting Turkey yeah, and Syria. There's
1: something benign about this particular earthquake which isn't the case for mm. the one we're reading. Y- yes, in yeah, uh-huh.
2: yeah mm-hmm. exactly. So it's almost as you know, in, in the light of what's happened on Carmel mm. God's saying look I can be in the earthquake I can be in the fire but actually I can also be in this because it's actually the sound of silence isn't it? And it's almost as if God's revelation of himself, um, Elijah is having to learn something new about God, something new about the way that God communicates and deals with him. And I do wonder, therefore, whether this repetition, but I'm the only one left, you know, maybe it, it does lose a little bit of the arrogance, a little bit of the the stuck in the storyness of it
1: I so I would I would still disagree but I think I'm going to end up agreeing with you Elaine so the I would argue that at this point the story hasn't shifted and the reason I would say that is that Hebrew has a technique of repeating narrative and then slightly modifying it in order to show change so the, the the most famous example of that is um, where Eve repeats the instruction of God in the Garden of Eden and she modifies the emphasis and you can tell that there's a shift in tone so even though the content is the same there's a kind of half-heartedness about the generosity of God in the way that Eve repeats it there's no shift whatsoever here and if there was a shift in tone I would have expected the Hebrew word order to order or not even the Hebrew it's in the English as well there would have been a, a subtle change because that can happen so I you're right. We don't know, but I'm I'm still landing in the place that this is still the same. Almost, I would argue, almost more vociferous, perhaps, because there's nothing to suggest this. But sometimes when someone pushes you on your story, sometimes you come back even even stronger. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that's that's the short term response. I think long term, what will happen with Elijah is exactly what you describe. He he will begin to realize that that, that the story has changed and i think that points as well we so back to this point of congruence we all know people let's start with other people who no matter what happens they are in the same story and and they will always twist events to show that the same story happens again and again. So somebody, for example, might tell a story about their medical care, and it turns out that every single doctor or nurse that they met in a particular hospital experience was dreadful to them. And they will tell you all the examples. Now, I'm not denying that there are sometimes points at which people have poor medical care. But if someone tells me a story spread over eight years, if, of lots of different hospitals where everybody was dreadful to them, then I begin to wonder if it's maybe there in that story. And I, that's called congruence. And what people who have studied this say that we cling to our sense of congruence. So it's, I'm, evict, I'm not looked after here. I'm always le- left to be last. Um, or sometimes it's a different one, like I'm better than everybody else. But we cling to our sense of congruence with an unbelievable tenacity, the story that we have for ourselves they've even done experiments on a people who had low self-esteem and they gave them a pay rise and the people who had low self-esteem were so disturbed by getting a pay rise because it was at variance with their their um their story which says i'm not very good at anything and someone gives you a pay rise which suggests you are they were so disturbed at getting a pay rise that they actually left the job uh, because they couldn't cope with their story being disturbed even though it was worth more money to them. And that's a, that shows you the strength at which we hold to our stories. And I think that what is happening, one of the things is, is Elijah has got himself into a story, which is I'm unique, I'm special, I'm the only one. And I think what God really tenderly does, and this is a very tenderly story, story, is shifts that Elijah story from I am unique to a much better one, which is Elijah you're not alone and Elijah is going to learn that this particular story is not his friend and he's he's going to lose ego in losing that story but he's going to gain something much better which is going to eventually be a community around him to whom he belongs
0: so we find ourselves in this <laughs> almost feels like a discussion around you know how we how we view the character of of elijah so if you're an elijah fan you think one thing if you're if you're a bit skeptical of him, you think something else but i suspect the truth lies somewhere in the reality of him as a human being you know that he is a flawed character but he's also a, a hero that he is not special and needs company but he is special we we know that from how he's treated in the rest of scripture we know that from the fact that that he finds himself in the mount of transfiguration Um, really really interesting actually i mean i've not said much for the last few minutes it's been really interesting listening to to those two different um stories (laughs) being being presented so again i mean i just throw in here if people are interested in kind of coming back with some of your reflections on any of that then you can contact us uh, and we can pick that up in in a future episode. Let's move it on a little bit. So he's then having encountered God and having gone through this this repeat that we see, uh, the repeat of the uh, verse 9 through to verse 18. He's given this instruction and he runs off to follow to the letter exactly what God says. <laughs> No, he doesn't. <laughs> or not.
2: <laughs> How human. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting, isn't it, that after this encounter, whatever is going on in the humanity and the rich humanity of who Elijah is, God has got a clear instruction for him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, got, he's got a new task for him. Uh, and I think right throughout this chapter, we see something of, Neil has said, the tenderness of, of God in dealing with Elijah through this time of very significant transition. Very significant transition from being, you know, the front end of this battle with evil, and everything that's against God, now to a situation where he's he's to be amongst others, and not the kingpin, and and that's that can be quite a difficult journey for most of us, where you know we've maybe had roles of of. Significance. I mean, I think about. I mean, I'm getting to an age where lots of my friends now are, are retired or retiring, and that's quite a big thing for people to transition from something that has given um, something of an identity for them. It's given something of a of a routine and a regularity around life, and then suddenly that changes. And of course, today we have things like you know retirement courses that people can go on and and get helped. But it's almost like you know, God is doing the retirement course with Elijah through the course of this chapter.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right, and it does it speaks it does speak to that situation. I, I would say as well as somebody at, at the stage of you know a little bit below that. Oh, you're not anywhere near retirement. <laughs> Thank you. <man>. you. <laughs> but as somebody around about fifty, I think there's a significant challenge mm. to hand on. Yeah. Because the the danger is you're not ready for retirement, so you think, I've got a good, well, I mean, to pay my mortgage, I've got a good 30 years ahead of me. I've got a lot still to do, and and there is a shift that happens at that middle age, isn't there? And you can either grasp that and think, right, do you know what? I need to invest in a, in a generation yeah. that's coming up, or you, you kind of cling on fast to here. To, you know, I mean, I, I certainly identify that as a challenge in, in, in my stage of, of life.
2: Yeah, and I wonder if it would be really interesting... To know if younger folk feel this because you know, I think one of the things that has changed over probably the last 20 years is that younger folk move jobs more frequently than many of us did, yeah. And so, you wonder whether that the, they begin to cope with transitions better mm-hmm. because they're more frequent. I don't know, it's just a, an interesting question, it's interesting,
1: it's quite interesting. So, as well, just knowing the two of you as I do, actually, both of you are pretty good at this. You both have quite a lot of younger friends. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I, I, mean, I, I, I have to sometimes choose to invest. Yeah. I, well, I do choose to invest, and you know, I think that's it's a kind of God encourages to encourages you to do. Is, that. There, is
1: there a sense almost that naturally you might not do that, but you you kind of feel yeah. that you have to be intentional? <laughs> 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 i love that i love that fact that you know people say oh we just need to invest in other people and we just need to do life to life you yeah. know that is
0: highly ambitious and self-centered and you're
1: you like no oh, it's really hard work
2: <laughs> this is this is where fiona and i are so different because she's very
1: intentional
2: about those things they just happen to me <laughs> <laughs> that's good though good
1: for you. i
0: just maybe have to make more efforts to <laughs> for you're a natural
1: you're a natural passer on Um, Can I say a wee bit? You alluded to this earlier about how he doesn't do anything that he's asked to do. I mean I do love that. He's he's got this kind of rebellious thing. I, without being slightly facetious, it's like one of these meetings where we all resolve to do everything and then we come back to the next meeting and discover that nothing in the minutes so has like, actually. Nothing when the matter is
2: arising. Um, Nobody has done anything. He's yeah. not exactly a model disciple, no. is he? So, exactly.
1: um, so he said uh, God says, Go on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, he doesn't go there. When you arrive, you'll anoint Hazel as king over Aram, he doesn't go anywhere near. Hezekiah um, eventually Jehu has a chat. Um, Elisha has a chat with him. Doesn't anoint him. Then you shall anoint Jehu, sort of Nimshi. Not even Elisha does that one. It's a, a prophet of Elisha. He does actually anoint. So this is the only person who does actually get anointed uh, as king of Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha son of Shaphat of Abel moholah as prophet in your place. That bit must have stung in your place because um, he's always going, "I alone, I alone." And suddenly it's not even "I alone." People talk about this as the firing of Elijah, by the way, some commentators. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't do that. And so what he does do is that for all that Elijah is a grumpy mentor, Elisha is the perfect disciple and he burns his oxen and he comes running after him and, and you know, he, he leaves his father and mother behind. And we remember that when Jesus saw that, he encouraged that sort of behavior. All Elijah says is, go back. What have I done to you? Uh poor Elisha. And I I wonder if part of the change in Elijah is the grumpiest mentor gets given the best student.
0: Ah, oh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's got good material to work with. Yeah. Yeah. I like the I like the burning of the the uh, plough. Oh yeah. Yeah, because it, it made me think about the the fishermen on the the shore. And Jesus Lee, calling calling the Leave your nets, yeah. Leaving it, so burn your ploughs. Leave your nets. This, you're all in for this. Actually. He doesn't kill
1: the oxen, does he? He just leaves them.
0: Well, he slaughters them, doesn't he? Do they not eat them?
1: Yeah, they eat them. Yeah. The twelve, uh, and it was with the twelve, Elijah passed by. So,
0: so verse twenty-one. Yeah, they were great oh, feast oh, Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I was
1: just reading the wrong bit. I was mean, pretty
0: yeah. practical. He burnt the, he burnt mm, the and he flesh. meat on it. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I think there's an interesting contrast here between the kind of personalities of Elijah and Elisha. You know, because if, if we're right in saying that, you know, Elijah is often a solitary figure mm-hmm. and seems to choose to be on his own quite a lot. And then the, the contrast with Elisha, who is obviously very invested in relationship and wants to have the time to to say a, a proper goodbye to his mother and father, but he's not ignoring... What Elijah has done in indicating that you know there is a succession plan here, Elisha's in the picture; hence the slaughtering of the of the oxen. So he he is marking the end of an old life and moving into a new life, but he's doing it relationally. He's he's not just walking away, mm-hmm. and and so there's something just I think in the contrast between their characters that that I quite like yeah that comes out of this path there is
1: an older there's a very very old manuscript of this where it follows the story of Elijah and elisha after this, and they go on a management course together it's a myers briggs management course and at the end of it they they do the questionnaire and they've discovered that they've got completely different profiles and and in this ancient manuscript which doesn't exist and um, they often they have arguments where Elijah is saying, oh, Elisha, you're such an E. You're always with people yeah. all the time. E. Oh, you're such an I, Elijah. And that's what it carries on those dialogues.
0: But it is a bit like Paul and but is, it, is it Paul and Silas or Paul and Timothy? Who is it who wants to take John Mark along? Is it Timothy? Oh, Barnabas. Barnabas. Yeah. Barnabas encourages the yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. like that relationship too, isn't it? Yeah. But they fall out about it. Yeah.
1: They also went on, they did the Enneagram. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant well I'm conscious of time and I want to, I want to keep us going with that uh, Neil you were at a wedding at the weekend and you wanted yes. to tell us a little bit go back I to met small the boys.
1: father of the bride Murray I had a lovely conversation with him he knows I'm telling this story and he was telling me about his spiritual journey and he said I grew up in the Christian brethren he kept using that phrase and he seemed to be using it as slightly different between the exclusives but not quite as open as the open so people who know about brethren keep us right on this one please And he said, I grew up in the Brethren. It's very profound, but then I went abroad and I ended up in a mega church. He told me what, and he said, it absolutely blew my mind. We were in this huge stadium of people. The band was amazing. It it was incredible. And he said, now I've come back to Scotland. I've really struggled to reconnect with church. And then he, he said, except this, he said, during COVID, the COVID years have been really, really tough and a lot of loss. Uh, there's an abbey, there's a Benedictine abbey near me at Pluscarden It's the most northern Benedictine abbey there is. And he said, I go there. And then these are exact words he said to me on Saturday. And I hear the still small voice. And I said to him, Murray, I'm doing a podcast on One Kings 19. Do you mind if I tell your story? And he said, absolutely. So he's going to listen to this. Uh, but it did strike me that not to squeeze his story in too much, but 1 Kings 17 might be his experience in the Christian brethren. 1 Kings 18 with the caramel and the fire might have been his experience in the megachurch. And 1 Kings 19 might have been his experience in the Benedictine Abbey. Mm. And all of them were vitally important parts of his journey with God.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, that's a lovely way to bring this part of the conversation to uh, to an end. Um, Do you have a takeaway I
2: think just related actually to that story that you just told Neil is that in in all the contrasting bits of this story over the the last three chapters and the 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 different things that we've thought we might understand about Elijah's character and the contrast with elisha that actually the key thing is that God is at work that and that g- God's willingness to use so many different people, situations is just thrilling to me. And it, so, it's, so this, I think, is a reminder for me of that trust in God, because he is the one that keeps working.
0: Lovely. Neil Glover?
1: I've got, thank you, Fiona Stewart, <laughs> I've got an epilogue, which slightly builds on what we've said, but it's, it's from Jesus. And Jesus in Mark chapter 9 says, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And he's referring to John the Baptist at this point. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written about him. And it's very, very striking to me that Jesus sees the spirit of Elijah, not just coming down to Elisha, but descending down the generation so powerfully into John the Baptist that he can call John the Baptist Elijah. But more than that, he uses this phrase, as it is written, that Elijah will be persecuted. Now, there is only one possible verse in the Elijah story that this could point to. And it's the bit where Jezebel says, may the gods do to me and more so if he is not killed at the end of the day. Now, that curse is never fulfilled in Elijah's lifetime, but it itself, with that spiritual potency we've talked about, seems to travel down through the centuries and eventually land on John the Baptist. So Jesus seems to understand that not just the spirit of Elijah comes down through the generations, but also quite disturbingly the the curse of Jezebel. And it points to the fact that the prophet will always encounter power and power will always seek to kill the prophet. And that has been an eternal conflict uh, down through the ages.
0: Mm. Interesting. That's linked to mine because mine was, I'm putting it slightly more simply, I think. <laughs> I, I realise we haven't had time really to talk about John the Baptist as the new Elijah. So I, I think I want to delve into that, having reflected on this chapter today, just to delve into what you've just talked about there, Neil, actually, the, um, how that sits On John the Baptist. Because I find John the Baptist quite a a difficult character Mm. to empathise with. You know, I think he's... I'm not... I think we've said this before, that I'm not sure if I would have really got on very well with him. (laughs) So, yeah. they're also quite enigmatic. Oh, he's enigmatic. Yeah. And usually I like that, but... oh. Anyway. (laughs) Good. Now, thank you very much to both of you. Now, Neil, I'll be honest. There has, I think, been some hesitation about what you've been trying to do with Glover's others. However... Hopefully, listeners are picking, picking up on the fact that some of these B-list characters really are worth a second look and uh, I guess there's a little pattern um, loaded in to how you're doing this and we'll leave that as, a, as an element of mystery for people to contemplate what is it that why do you lead from one character to another with each uh, succeeding episode so without further ado who on earth are they where do they fit in and what's their story? Glover's Others. B-list characters you really don't want to miss. Who's your B-roll character this time?
1: Can I just say, by the way, 100% on that jingle for this. It's incredible. <laughs> My B-list character is Aaron. Because he is literally the, the B part to Moses's A part. And that must have been a perpetual struggle. You get a sense of that. Uh, where he takes the the golden calf, and yet he still has this huge role to play to be the high priest for the people, to be the intermediary, to be the person he's called to be. In many ways, I think Aaron is a kind of tragic, slightly almost invisible character, and yet, and and one who never quite fulfills the promise Exodus, it's said that he'll go and be the mouthpiece. I don't think he ever is in front of Pharaoh, not really. And yet he still has the role to play to inhabit literally the high priest robes to, to go to. And for me, uh, my B-list character is the B-side to the Moses A-side. It's Aaron who still has the song to sing and the part to
0: play. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you both for joining us and thank you listeners for joining us too. Next time, events turn darker still as we delve into First Kings 21, Second Kings 9, 30 to 37, and Hosea 1 one to five and it's in an episode that Neil has entitled Jezreel a byword for horror so it's a tough read steal yourselves uh, but I'm looking forward to the conversation that will ensue there the links to those readings by the way will be in the show notes to this episode if you uh, didn't catch what I said there Uh, and we will speak to you next time thank you the outspoken bible is a podcast from scottish bible society to find ways you can share the bible go to scottishbiblesociety.org